Listening Dog Media. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. By the way, um, loving the seagulls with you, the um, sorry about that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> How to DJ? How to DJ? DJ. How to DJ? To succeed as a DJ, you must create your own identity. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How to DJ. It's really important for music fans to be behind the mic. Know your music and know your crowd, and just enjoy yourself. How to DJ podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. The sense of unity that dance music can create, I think it's all intrinsically linked. And my guest for this episode spent a decade presenting Radio 1's dance anthems. It didn't feel like work. It was just like, you know, a really sort of passionate energy experience. He's played the biggest clubs in the world. It was unlike anything that I'd experienced before. You know, I remember arriving from the airport and there was a huge billboard with my name on it. And he's one of UK dance music and club culture's pioneers. I created the first hip hop show on BBC Radio called A Fresh Start to the Week. Got very involved in that. And then I also had a dance show running at the same time where I was playing a lot of the early house music that came out of America. I was lucky enough to get in the DJ booth with him and um, see him do his art. And it was just an amazing time, really. For me to be sort of helping conduct that orchestra if you like on a Sunday night and and the fact that I could break records I mean that was really exciting you know and that was a great great vibe Dave Pierce, welcome to How To DJ Hi well it's nice to be here Dave before heading into the How To DJ box of questions tell me where you think your DJ story started well I think my DJ story started as a small child really I had two passions when I was a young child. You know, I'm talking about quite an early age when I was at primary school. Uh, One was radio and one was music. And um, I was actually quite ill in my early childhood with bronchial asthma and all kinds of bronchial chest things. So I spent a lot of time at home and not at school. So I was an avid radio listener. And one of the things that turned me on at a very early age was a station called Radio Luxembourg, which was on a thing called Longwave. You'd have this little transistor radio by your ear. And I used to sort of be in bed listening to this signal fading in and out, which added to the uh, appeal, I think. But they were playing this amazing disco music at the time. And I was like, wow, I'd love to go to, you know, to be able to go to a disco and see all this. So I think that kind of hooked me in. And I just, in my head, I was like, wow, I'd love to do that. And then Capital Radio came along, another radio station with a guy called Greg Edwards. And he used to broadcast live from a nightclub. It was called The Best Disco in Town. And I used to hear that. I'd be lying in the bath or something going, oh, I've got to do that one day. So it 
instilled a sort of dream in me that I just had to fulfill. And, and lucky enough, I was able to have those experiences and do live shows from clubs and everything that these guys had influenced me with. Were you only into music as a kid or was there anything else that you loved? Yeah, I mean, I couldn't really do much sport in it because I was kind of ill all the time. So I think music, um, you know, I like reading books and stuff like that. Obviously, we're talking way pre-internet and all those things. There was only three channels on the TV. Yeah, I'd say music has really been a dominating um, force. You know, people often say, oh, what are your hobbies? So, you know, sort of pop and go to the cinema and reading books and that. The music is so time consuming. I spend, you know, I'm not complaining because I enjoy it, but I spend most of my life and most of my week in some way engaged in music, whether it's listening to new music or um, making my podcast or traveling to do gigs. And it's it's been that way for over 40 years. God, I'm old. Anyway, yes, it's been the dominating force, really. Even as a kid, was it always dance music that you were into? Well, when I was a kid, I was into all kinds of music. I loved the disco music because it was just so uplifting and happy and that definitely sowed a seed with me. You know, I became an avid Motown fan, even though it was slightly a few years before me. I kind of went and rediscovered all that and fell in love with it. I think, again, because it was uplifting and euphoric and happy. And then when the first electronic bands started coming along, you know, I got really into them, whether it was like Heaven 17 and the Human League when I was a teenager or Kraftwerk. You know, I think the first record I ever bought was um, Popcorn Hot Butter, which was this kind of early electronic record. So uh, there was something about synths in there for me, definitely, which has really followed through in my career. And also about uplifting vocals or uplifting songs or uplifting messages and the sense of unity that I think dance music can create. I think it's all intrinsically linked. So my, my DNA was kind of black music and synths, really. And which came first? Was it radio or DJ? It was really weird. When I was still at junior school, I remember being invited to people's parties and I was a record collector. So I, most of my friends only had one or two records, but I had tons. So I was the guy, it wasn't, you know, it was just one turntable, but I'd be putting on all the records. And um, I actually remember someone saying to me when I was about 10, God, you'd be good at doing this because your party's kind of rocking. So I, I started doing like youth club discos and things like that. But also on a radio point, I started doing pirate radio when I was still at school. In fact, we secretly set up what we were claiming to be a radio project for the school, but we were actually using it in break times to record shows for pirate radio, which probably wouldn't have gone down very well with the school if they'd known that's what we were doing. So I was doing pirate radio in quite a big way um, from, I guess, about 14 or 15. And I joined Radio Jackie, which was the first big land-based pirate radio station in the UK. And it was very pioneering. You know, tapes of it were played in the House of Commons as an example of what commercial radio could sound like in the UK. So I was very lucky to be on there. I had to make my voice sound deep because I was so young, you know, didn't want people to know I was a kid. But I think the only reason I got the job on Pirate Radio is one of your jobs was you had to, uh, a few of you had to stand near the transmitter. The shows were all recorded and you had to be in a field with this transmitter. And then the idea was if the police came and raided it, you'd had to try and leg it with the transmitter or the tapes. And being a young, you know, by then I was about 15 or something, you know, that was your rights of passage to be able to then go on and do a show, but it was all great fun. Who else was on Radio Jackie at the time? Well, on Radio Jackie at the time, there was an amazing guy called Brian Anthony who went on to set up JFM. He was a great soul DJ and actually a real pioneer in the scene in London. There was a guy called Steve Walsh who became um, a friend of mine years later and he went on to work at Radio London with me and he had a hit record I Found Loving and he was a great soul DJ as well. So they were the, the main ones that I remember. Was Jackie your first paid gig? No, well Radio Jackie being a pirate, we did it all voluntary and actually what was quite interesting is at the beginning it didn't take advertising but we did put on gigs occasionally which 
helped fund the radio station, so I did those. But my first paid DJ work was actually proper, you know, moving on from doing mobile discos and that. I saw an advert in the London Evening Standard when I was 16, and it said DJs required to work abroad. And at the time, I hated school. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I loved DJing, and that I thought that sounds very good. And I thought I'd try it. And, you know, I thought that probably sounded too young. Anyway, I went for this audition in London, and um, it was actually for a club in what was then called Bombay. It's Mumbai, India. And um, the owners there really liked me and, and gave me a shot. So I went home and told my mum and dad, and I was like, you know, I've been offered this <laughs> job in India. That was in the early part of the year. It was to fly out after summer, and I turned 17, and that was my first job and it was a club playing music for the Bollywood community. It was called Studio 29. It was named after like Studio 54 in New York and that was still in the disco era. And it was incredible. They used to fly in new records for us every week. I had to learn my art. I didn't really know what I was doing. You know, when I did the demo, I was just doing a bit of stuff on the mic and I don't know, it just somehow jumped. But I got there, I was like, I didn't really know how to do this. Luckily, they had another DJ they bought who played in all the Mayfair clubs and stuff like that. And he taught me a lot. Yeah, it was an incredible experience. And, you know, I remember going to school, you know, rather arrogantly going to the teacher, bye, I'm off, I'm going to work in India. Like, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's a life-changing experience, really. And how did that lead to Radio 1? Well, it was a bit of a journey between all that. You know, when I got back, I did BBC Radio London, local radio, and I created the first hip-hop show on BBC Radio called A Fresh Starts of the Week. Got very involved in that. And then I also had a dance show running at the same time. I was playing a lot of the early house music that came out of America. Then I went to Kiss, which we started in 1990, and I ended up doing the breakfast show there. And I was kind of, you know, had a call with Radio One, and they were like what I was doing on the breakfast show at Kiss FM, and invited me to come and join their team. They really wanted to shake it up. I joined on the same day as Chris Evans, and I did the um, early breakfast show, and then Chris was on after me. And we had a really great bond and a really good vibe going. And I was told to go in and, you know, Trevor Dan, who was the boss at the time, and Matthew Manners says, you know, go on. And I think Trevor Dan said, go on and be a bit naughty. Um, you know, so we tried all sorts of different things and we got a really big audience, you know, really quickly. Is it possible, would you say, to quantify just how big your show on Radio 1 became? I- I'm talking now about dance anthems. Yeah, so what was happening with dance anthems, I had this idea, and it reminded me when I was at Radio London and GLR, that Sunday night, there was nothing on the telly. The Top 40 had a massive audience, and then they used to put documentaries on the end of it, and the audience figures went from millions to that. And I thought, why not put on a show that reflects everyone's weekends, what they're up to? So we aim some of that at students and people doing the homework. The rest of it I devised as, as a kind of reflection of your weekend, really, what were the big records and so forth. And, and I went to the idea with Matthew Bannister, took him to a pub, which is always a good idea, by the way, if anyone wants to get on in radio and there's a drinker there. We had a few pints, sold him the idea, and he actually went for it. I had no idea it was going to be um, so big. So I ended up having the third highest share on radio when we had 1.7 million listeners within very short space of time. And yeah, it was just incredible, the reaction we had to it. You know, I tried to make it as well as breaking new music, play the real big classics. So it had a real good feel factor. Um, really goes back to all the DNA I mentioned earlier about feel-good music, a sense of unity in terms of people that had been to clubs and where they'd been, given the opportunity to talk about the sort of nights that they'd had, but also be very inclusive for people that weren't out clubbing, like teenagers, the younger audience. You know, we were targeting 
very much a 19 to 25 year old audience. And I knew that a lot of those people were at home with nothing to do at that time, you know, again, pre-internet and streaming and all these things. So, you know, music was an essential part of people's lives. So everything just came together and, um, you know, it was a happy time. What was it like being part of Radio 1 at that time? It was exciting to join Radio 1 that time. It was really weird because I was on the station called Kiss FM in London doing really, really well. You know, our audience was growing and I got the opportunity to go to Radio 1. Everyone said, you're mad because at that time, pre-Chris Evans joining, it was in a bit of decline. They'd got rid of a load of legendary figures there and things hadn't quite worked out and it needed a bit of a shake-up. So there was a bit of... um, trepidation but I thought if I don't go for this I'll never know and I'd kind of gone everywhere I'd wanted to go with Kiss FM so to be able to be introduced to a national audience for the first time was really exciting and I instantly as soon as I got in there I wanted to get involved in traveling in the country meeting as much of the audience as I could you know whether I was in Belfast or Cleethorpes or Glasgow or wherever it was I knew how important it was not to be London centric with a station like that so I grasped that opportunity and um you know, it was tremendously exciting because Matthew Trevor pretty much gave us free reign. You know, with dance anthems, I was allowed to program all the music myself. So it was from the heart. I had some very good production teams around me. In those days, we were allowed to have volunteers in that came and answered the phones and stuff. And I'd try and pass on my experiences to them. So many of those people went on to become producers or work in television or radio. It was just a great energy. It didn't feel like work. It was just like a really sort of passionate energy experience really as djs did you all get on really well well the funny thing of course at a radio station as you all know is you don't always see each other for a start because you're in and out doing your shows and um so i got on quite well with a few of the djs there was always like i'm not going to name names there was always one or two kind of weirdo ego ones which was always quite funny but i got on really well with um mark goodyear it was absolutely lovely when I joined and he kind of took me under his wing. You know, the first day I met him, he said, you really need to get out and do all your club stuff and you need to really, you know, maximise and all that. So he gave me some very sound advice. Chris Evans was absolutely amazing. Uh, and when I was doing Early Breakfast, he started an on-air, on-air campaign, Get Dave on Drive Time, which eventually happened. Uh, so he was really good. And, uh, you know, I love Simon Mayo, Nicky Campbell. I got on really well. So I was, I was quite lucky, really in that there were some really great people there and, um, you know, people that you could learn of and people that I respected as well. Do you think, Dave, that when Dance Anthems was on at the height of it, mid-90s to the mid-noughties, it was a hedonistic time in dance music. Was it dance music's best time? I think it was one of the golden eras because I've been around for so long. You know, I went through Acid House, I went through Rave Culture. They were brilliant. For me to be sort of helping conduct that orchestra, if you like, on a Sunday night. And the fact that I could break records, I mean, that was really exciting, you know, that some kid could send me a track from Holland, you know, Ferry Corson would send me a record from Holland, I'd play it on the radio, it would get signed, it would become a hit, you know, and I'd keep playing it until it was a hit, you know, and that was a great, great vibe, really. What was your life like during that decade of dance anthems? Well, I think I'm still recovering from that decade, to be honest. I was working seven days a week. Uh, I did drive time, I did dance anthems, I was touring all the time, uh, so I'd do midweek gigs, and then I'd do Ibiza on a Saturday, I'd do Mallorca on a Friday, I might do anywhere that I could get to, that I could fly back in time to do drive time, I'd be doing that. And then I set up a record company as well in the middle of it all. And then I got a column, first of all, in The Sun, and then in my own page in The Daily Star covering dance music. So I was doing all of those things, which were really, uh, you know, it, it was very labour-intensive. I learned to Time managed really well. I'm, I'm, I'm a stickler for deadlines. I had good people around me, which is really important. And um, it was mad. But 
great fun, you know. I said that it was a hedonistic time in dance music back then. Was it hedonistic for you? Well, what was weird is when I first started, you know, one of the exciting experiences for me was when I got offered my first gig in Ibiza as a residency. And it was unlike anything that I'd experienced before. You know, I remember arriving from the airport and there was a huge billboard with my name on it. And then they had a plane going around advertising your gig. And I mean, it's a totally different experience to my life. And there, unlike some moody club in England, and they were like, the owner of the club would be like, champagne and all this. So the first couple of years, you know, I drink about two bottles of champagne while I was DJing, but then I had to come back and do dance anthems on a Sunday. I'd be snoring on the plane, all that, and I had to change in Barcelona. It wasn't direct there, so it was a nightmare getting back. So after a couple of years of that, it wasn't really hedonistic. My hedonistic time was probably in the Acid House era and then the rave era but um we certainly reflected those elements in the show because it was i made dance and very much a lifestyle show it was very much at the beginning of reality tv the very early days of it and i'd watched that in america as someone that traveled to america a lot and i wanted to bring those kind of lifestyle elements into the show and that's why it worked i think dave before dipping into the big box of questions here you mentioned america is travel the best or worst part of your job I think right now it's the worst part of my job. Luckily, I am mainly doing the gigs in the UK. I've got three Ibiza shows to do this summer. But um, prior to COVID, it was, you know, once you get to a certain age, it's quite challenging. So I think traveling for me is, it takes me to till about today when we're doing this show is a Wednesday. And um, I did a festival in Birmingham on Friday and Torquay on Sunday and then a live streaming show on Sunday. And it, today I'm only feeling normal, you know from all the traveling and stuff so yeah it's definitely it's fine when you're 20 but when you're older it's knackering yeah but you wouldn't want to do anything else would you not really no i mean i think the only other thing i was also interested in journalism and you know i did sort of tip into that my early experience in radio i worked in the newsroom and things like that so i've always thought about if i wasn't doing this what would i do probably making documentaries or something like that but uh, right now i love i still get a buzz out of what i'm doing i've got a whole bunch of promos here 100 new tracks to listen to today which i'll listen to just in case that one track is in there that it's going to blow me away and, and i'll listen to my delirium podcast so you know still very driven by discovering new music and and sharing the classics and the memories as well you've done it from such a young age as you've talked about do you find it easy? Um, well, I still get nervous before gigs because you never know what you're walking into, really. So you can go out with the best intentions. Like, I know what I'm going to play this, this, this. And you get there and it's a different sort of crowd or the energy is different. So you never really know what you're walking into. But I think it's quite important to have that kind of nervous energy. I do find doing radio, you know, although I'm not doing it really at the moment, um, very natural. I've always um, enjoyed doing it. I feel that one-on-one connection that radio has where you... Although you may be talking to millions of people, you do feel like you're engaging on a one-on-one basis with people. And I love live radio and live interaction, and I always enjoy that. So I think I'm probably more nervous doing um, the gigs. You know, I did one in Sheffield the other week. I think it was 8,000 people there called 90s Fest. And you're like, you walk on the stage and you're thinking, what if I get it wrong? You know, like, they're all going to hate me. And then luckily it was great and it was all good. But yeah, I think most people, you know, you talk to actors and people like that. I think, you know, you still get a bit of like, how's it going to go? I guess, but I'm quite surprised that you now would still get nervous. Has it ever all gone wrong? Oh, God, yes. I think that, um, you know, most DJs, if they hold their hands up, have had plenty of disasters. I'm certainly prone to them. I remember in the rave era, when you talk about hedonistic, and that's when I was a bit naughty and hedonistic. I think everybody was, to be fair. But that was when we were DJing on vinyl. And I do remember 
on more than one occasion picking up what was the live record. So you took the needle off the record that's playing to thousands of people by mistake. You, you know, strobes go in and God knows what, and you probably had too much to drink. But I remember once actually taking it off and then there was this sort of roar from the crowd and then I, I put the needle back on it and it somehow came in at exactly the right point so it was like it was, it was some mastery dj trick you know and everyone was like oh my god that's amazing but i've had sound systems going down on me um one of the worst ones i did a gig in qatar in the desert somewhere and it was the, the end of the days of vinyl if you like and they really set everything up with cdjs and the um the decks that they got me were not set up properly they weren't earth so there's all this harm and everything and i'd flown thousands of miles to do this gig <laughs> the only way we could get around it was um with these guys holding the decks uh, off the plinth if you like to stop all this um feedback it was one of the worst experiences in my life we just wanted every second you're looking at your watch like I just want to die. This is hell. <laughs> I'm trying to work out. I'm trying to think what your banker record would be. And one that I always associate with you from listening to you through the years, being at venues when you've been playing, Bucketheads, The Bomb. Um, but what would you say to that? What What's your absolute banker? Well, one of my big records in my set, which I've played consistently, is Delirium Silence. It's got all the elements that I love in it. You know, it's got a nice rhythm track, nice production. It's got a really emotional vocal. And after playing it for, you know, 20-odd years, um, you know, I can still get really moved when I'm playing it. And when I see the crowd reaction, I played it in um, Torquay on Friday. We had a guy that I was going to meet who's who's got sadly got motor neurons disease, and we'd arranged to do a meet and greet. And unfortunately, he got pneumonia and he couldn't come. And so I dedicated the record to him and everyone was just there with their hands in there. And when the vocal came in, you know, people crying and everything, it was such an emotional record. And I played it after 9-11, actually, when I arrived in Ibiza, when that had just happened and people weren't really aware of what's going on. It was just just such a powerful record. Do you love being in Ibiza? Yeah, I love being in Ibiza. I mean, I did a 10-year residency doing it every week on top of everything else I was doing. So it nearly killed me. But it's nice to be back again um, this year. I was lucky enough to do a gig at the end of the summer there once we were allowed back, you know, to do our shows again. Dave, it is pretty incredible that you're still playing these huge venues. Yeah, I mean, it's been amazing. I think what's happened is that a lot of my audience... They sort of stopped going out clubbing for a bit and they had kids in there and now they all want to get they want to go out again. But also a younger generation that have discovered the music on YouTube and places like that, they come as well. So it's a really nice mixture and I'm, you know, really humbled by the fact that um, you know, I'm still being asked to do this and doing a lot of festivals this year. You know, I'm just incredibly pleased to be able to be doing it and love seeing the crowds going mad and you know, it's just such a happy bike. Time for the first of your five picks from 45 in this record box here. All the questions are on 45, Steve. Just say when and I'll pick one out. Okay. When? Who is the greatest DJ of all time? Wow, that is an impossible question to answer, but in terms of somebody that really influenced me, although it wasn't the style of music that I went on to play, it was Frankie Knuckles, who was this brilliant pioneering house DJ. And I got to know him in the very early days of house music. And always when I was in New York, I'd go and see him play. And he just had a, an incredible instinct with the music. It was very emotional, lots of strings. And, you know, he was called the godfather of house by many people. And, and I think that um, indeed that's what he was. I was very lucky to know him, miss him very much. But, it, you know, he was a great influence. Do you remember meeting him for the very first time? I remember meeting Frankie Knox for the very first time because, um, you know, house music was this new phenomenon that almost arrived overnight, really. And he came, I did his first interview in the UK. Uh, he came in to see me at Radio London. We got on really well. I knew the guys with the label that he was um, 
working with in Chicago. And we just kind of hit it off. And then, as I said, every time I went to New York, I'd go and see him at the Sound Factory Bar, which was this amazing, predominantly black gay club. It was a fantastic club. And um, he'd always give me a big bear hug. And then I, we didn't know it was going to happen, but to do his last interview before he sadly passed away. And I was able to document his life with him quite a lot, you know, really going back. So that was, that was really a great privilege. And then I was invited to go through his record collection after he passed away in, um, in Chicago, where it was put in a, a sort of museum thing, you know, going through his records, seeing how he'd labeled them and what had influenced him and, you know, talking to the curator about it and, and giving a sort of UK perspective on some of the music. There's quite a lot of European electronic early dance music in there. And he had things like Marvin Gaye live at the London Palladium and stuff like that in his record boxes. But I went through it all. It was a real treasure trove and something, you know, I was pleased to be asked to do. How incredible. Back into the box for your second question. Just say when. Okay. When? <laughs> Radio or playing out? Well, I think for me, uh, they're both very different things. Right now, it's playing out because I find that radio is too controlled. You know, you're not given the freedom that, that I was lucky enough to have. And if it's going to be no creative freedom or vibes, and I'm not really interested. So I think for me, it's uh, playing out. You just feel it's you being you. <laughs> What's the biggest crowd you've ever played to, Dave? The biggest crowd I ever played to indoors was at what was called the then the Millennium Dome. It became the O2 Arena in London. If you remember, it was built for the Millennium and then it kind of failed as a business. So Ministry of Sound approached me the year later, I think it was, and said, look, we might have a chance of hiring this venue. It's sitting there doing nothing. We're thinking of putting on a massive rave. I was like, you're mad, it will never work. But they pulled it off. We had 45,000 people there. It was in the days when we were still on vinyl. And I remember the sheer terror of going in there and just having two turntables. I was booked to do the midnight moment. In those days, the O2, it was all one building, not like it is now in different arenas and stuff. So you just looked out at this sea of 45,000 people, and I, I guess that must be what it's like to be in U2 or something. But I was shaking all the way through it. I was, you know, it was a tremendous rush and privilege to do it, but I was absolutely terrified. What did you play at midnight? I played uh, a track called The Dirt Devils, The Drill. Funny enough, they asked me prior what I was going to play, and they timed all the pyrotechnics to it. So that was the added pressure on vinyl. It's not like a digital proposition where I had to play the record all exactly calculated. And I actually, when I got there, they said, oh, you need to come for your safety briefing. I was like, what do you mean your safety briefing? They said, well, we've got two rockets. We're going to fire them from the other side of the Millennium Dome. They're on wires. They're going to come towards you, go either side of the stage where you are, and then they're going to ignite all the pyrotechnics at midnight. So I was like, am I going to catch fire or something? No, no, it's fine. Of course, back of my neck was burnt. And then some of the pyrotechnics led off these um, tinfoil things. And I was playing Vinyl, so it all started falling on the decks, the live decks that were playing to all these thousands of people. Luckily, a friend of mine was up there, and he, for some reason, he brought an umbrella with him, and he opened the umbrella, and that's what stopped all the gunk falling off onto the turntables, which would, of course, would ended in absolute disaster. Can you imagine your record coming off in front of that many people in the Millennium Dome? It would have been an absolute nightmare. <laughs> How to DJ with Chris Hawkins? Still to come. I would say that DJing is a bit like a game of chess. You're always like looking at a couple of moves ahead. This club was huge, and to be asked to do your own residency in those early days, it was a really special night. It was really euphoric, and you know I'll always remember that. Back into the box for question three. Just say when. When can you name the best club ever? I think that probably a, a club that I just still think about. It's not there anymore. It was Paradise Garage in New York City. 
And I remember being out there, you know, I used to be in America a lot. And these friends of mine said, you've got to go to this club. You've got to go to this club. And um, it was in the days when in the UK, clubs used to shut at midnight, but this one didn't really get going until three or four in the morning. I remember going in there and in the early days, it didn't have an alcohol license or anything like that. There's no alcohol. It was just everyone on a vibe or special vibe. (laughs) And it was just the most amazing club. And that's what the Ministry of Sound was based on. They kind of took the whole concept and even the design of the building. The DJ was called Larry Levan. He was very musical. Although he was playing on vinyl, he had a little keyboard. It was a Casio or something, and he'd play bits over it. He was a great remixer and producer. He worked with people like Gwen Guthrie and, and that, and he was an iconic figure. And I was lucky enough to get in the DJ booth with him and um, see him do his art. And it was just an amazing time, really. Amazing. Um, yeah. Um, back into the box. Say when. When? How much planning goes into your sets? Weirdly, I do a fair amount of planning. I try and look at, you know, what the event is, what time it is, uh, what we think the audience demographic is. And then I have all these ideas and I create sort of playlists and then I get there and change my mind. But if you don't, you'd really panic because you go there thinking, I'm going to play this. And then, you know, the DJ's playing in a totally different way. Or, you know, you could have a DJ that's over hammering it before you come and then you have to be one that brings it down to sustain the night. Or you might feel that they haven't generated the energy you need. And so you're looking at that. I would say that DJing is a bit like a game of chess. You're always like looking at a couple of moves ahead and working at where you're going to take it down as well as up. Because if you just do up, up, up all the time, that's not going to work. But that is, I guess, the fun part of it, really. And also, you know that you're going to make it go off in three records time or something. Controlling a crowd like that is, is quite fun. Do you think you can always make it go off in three records? Uh yeah, I've got a few secret weapons where I can. Yeah, yeah. I've always got my uh, get out of jail records that where we are. <laughs> Touch wood. And now you said that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Share one of those. What's one of your secret weapons? Well, I would say, I mean, there's quite a few really that I use, uh, depending on what needs fixing. If it's a trance gig, Adagio for strings is one that always just resonates with people because it's got such a beautiful breakdown when the strings come in. I've got an amazing rework of Zombie Nation, which is um, a kind of electro-y remix of it. It's got all the key parts in it. And, you know, I always turn the bass up as well. So it People actually come running into the dance floor when that comes on, even if they're at the bar or something. So that's a good one. So those are a couple of the ones that I would um, use as get out of jail. <laughs> cool. Uh, one final question from the box. Say when, Dave. When? So this is when and where was the greatest night of your life, DJ? Wow, that's so difficult. I think probably one that I'll always remember and cherish was doing my very first night at Eden in Ibiza because this club was huge and to be asked to do your own residency in those early days. But previously, there was just Cream and uh, I think Up Your Ronson, which was from Leeds, and they were themed around the clubs themselves, not the DJs. So to be asked to have a night built around you was nerve-wracking, exciting. Uh, I had no idea would people come. And, um, you know, it was a really special night. It was really euphoric. And, you know, I'll always remember that moment and, and the trust that the guys had put in me to do it. It wasn't my idea. They approached me and was... Uh, the beginning of 10 happy years, jumping on and off that plane to Ibiza. Who has the best time, Dave, you or the crowd? Well, my goal is to give the crowd the best time, you know, try and do whatever it takes to make people happy and have a great time, you know. And so, I mean, I love it, but hopefully they love it even more. If they do, then I've done my job, you know. Dave, 
One last question for you. It's the end of the world and you have to play the last three records on earth. What would those three records be? My last three records on earth would be uh, Frankie Knuckles' Tears, a brilliant DJ and producer. Tears is a very sad and emotional record, but happy at the same time. It's got those elements in it where it's just a beautiful thing. So um, I would definitely play that. Um, I would play Adagio for Strings, uh, Barber's Adagio for Strings, which was um, recorded by William Orbit and then remixed by Ferry Corsten. And that has got this just amazing string section in it where it's just absolutely beautiful. And I think, you know, you just reflect on what a wonderful gift that record was. And then my ultimate record would be Marvin Gaye and What's Going On. I was a massive fan of Marvin Gaye and that record in particular and the whole album. But I think that track still resonates today. And it's probably the most important record in my life. You know, one that I've gone to in, in tragic times and, and happy times. And uh, yeah, I listen to it a lot. So yeah, that would definitely be in there. What a legend. Thank you so much, Dave Pierce. Thank you, Dave. Cheers. Thanks for having me on. And that was How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from.